Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on the theme of peace. I mean, peace is something that we all want. Peace is something everyone can agree is good, that it's better than war. But it's one thing to actually want peace and another thing to actually think seriously about how to create peace. Our aim in this panel discussion is to think a bit more about questions of what sort of factors promote peace, what makes some periods in history more peaceful than others, what kind of factors matter, and is pacifism justified as a response to war? What is pacifism? What should pacifists do when war is declared? Is, is pacifism really a viable option all the time, or is it just a, a good option some of the time? And what can we do as ordinary citizens? You know, we're not institutions, we're not prime ministers or presidents. What can we do as ordinary people to try and bring about peace, to try and make the world a more peaceful place? And I'm delighted to be joined by four panelists who are coming to these questions from quite different directions, bringing really interesting perspectives to bear. I mean, they are uh, Robin Dunford and Michael New from the University of Brighton, and Louise Arimatsu from the Centre for Women, Peace and Security here at the LSE, and Rachel Julian um, from an organisation called Nonviolent Peace Force, also of, of Leeds Beckett University. So to give you a sense of the format for the event, I mean, we'll talk a bit among the panel about a key topic, and then at various points during the event, there'll be an opportunity for you in the audience to ask questions to the panel about what you've heard, and we're really hoping for some interesting contributions and questions from you. I mean, our first key topic is what kind of factors promote peace? If we think about the 20th century, I mean, there was certainly a period, 1900 through to 1945, characterized by the most appalling wars in human history, followed by a period, 1945 to 2000, where there's still plenty of wars but on the face of it, those, those horrors of the first half of the 20th century weren't repeated. And so there's a sense of maybe we're doing some of the right things. Maybe we are doing things to, maybe, maybe we're doing things to prevent world wars happening again, or maybe the next world war is just around the corner. I mean, Louise, I mean, do you want to offer your thoughts on this? I mean, here is a, here is a provocative thought to start off. One might suggest that the world has become a somewhat more peaceful place than it was in World War II, and that the reason for that is that NATO and Russia have such terrible weapons and are so easily able to annihilate millions of people at the push of a button that this has deterred conflict, and that's, that's all it is. Well, it's a bleak view, is it right? It, uh, I, I'm going to disagree here, um, of course, but first, thank you for inviting me to, to enter into conversation with mm. colleagues here. Um, and I actually want to pick up on something you just said mm. prior to that, when you said the horrors of the first half of the 20th century mm. versus the second half. Yeah. And I think basically what you're referring to interstate conflict in the first mm. half. But when we consider the other types of conflicts that were raging during the second half, you know, I mean, you know the, the horrors there, you know, perhaps, the, or, or I would suggest, were of equal gravity magnitude as those that we saw in the first half. Um, and, and 
it sort of begs the question, what are the criteria by which we're measuring conflict here? You know, I mean, like, is it so you don't think, death uh, or human suffering? You, you don't know, think I mean, there's less suffering in the second half of the 20, 20th century than the Suffering first. by whom? You know, I mean, I this, this is the big question, too. That I, I, I think, you know, I was reflecting really on some of the questions that you raised um, for today's discussion. And, you know, one of them was, what are the main factors that promote yeah, peace? Yeah. And I think even before we get to responding to that particular question, there were two prior questions that have to be raised. And the first one is, what do we mean by peace? Okay. And then peace for whom? And I think okay. these are really critical questions. So let's, because, let's go to those prior mm, questions. <laughs> what is peace? I thought it was simple. I thought it was the absence of war. Certainly, we have a narrow conception of peace, mm. which is simply the absence of war, the absence of violence. Okay. Um, but we also have, and share, many of us share, a far more um, richer, broader um, understanding of what peace entails. Now, the problem with a lot of the work around peace, or, or perhaps the lack of peace, is that when we begin to talk about peace, it's usually almost in contradistinction to on conflict and war, and we keep on falling back into talking about violence and conflict without talking about what we mean by peace. I mean, Phil, I I think we were discussing this very subject before we came out here. What do you mean by peace? So one of the ways of thinking about peace is uh, it's not so much just that there's no violence. I think we have to be careful to distinguish between conflict and violence, because not all conflict is violent but if you're talking about violent conflict there is that but what about the ways in which we uh, sort of maybe inhabit space together and actually uh, the ways in which we non-violently resolve conflict what about the ways in which we create uh, an environment which is uh, habitable and and cares for people what about social justice and uh, dealing with oppression so actually you can create an idea of peace which which is maybe richer uh, which maybe takes into account um, not just the politics of the time, but actually the daily lives of, of, of what people do and what they need to make people mm. safe. So there's whether peace exists at this high level of other nations at war, but mm. also at the, the personal level, do I feel as though I'm living in a time of peace? Yeah. Well, you you also mentioned about the sort of like the the changes over the last century about when we went from Mm. interstate war. What characterizes violent conflict now is is deaths of civilians, deaths of people in their daily lives. So we're no longer talking about sending in large militaries and people who have Mm. signed up to serve their country or, uh, and sort of face death in war. But actually, these are people whose daily lives are ruined by violent conflict. And actually, mm. what kind of peace would they look for? Yeah, I mean, Michael, or um, I mean, in fact... I mean, just so that this narrative that we have around there was this massive amount of... Uh, violent conflict in the first half of the yeah. 20th century the and then things have been more presented. peaceful yeah. um, moments ago it's, it's, <laughs> it's based on uh, numbers we have from databases that count the amount of people who are 
killed directly in war. So if someone in a context of war is killed by a soldier with a gun or someone else with a weapon, they will be counted as uh, a direct death in war. And the numbers of those have gone down in the second half of the 20th century compared to the first. Mm. Now, one of the problems with this is that war has changed immensely. And the things Rachel was talking about, starvation, displacement, these are all weapons of contemporary war. You think about the conflicts going on in Libya and Yemen at the moment and the cost of those that arises from people being killed directly in war is only a, a, unfortunately only a small part of the cost of that war. A huge part of that cost is the displacement of people, starvation, which is all not counted in those numbers. So I think the data we use when we make this claim about declining violence doesn't necessarily tell us much about violence. But the other problem with it is that it is all based on this... Um, conception of peace as negative, as simply the absence of war, of people using guns in a war context against one another. Um, and that ignores the massive violence that takes place through the everyday operation of uh, structures in world politics, or whatever we want to say. So uh, one of the worst episodes of killing in conflict in the later part of the 20th century was the Rwandan genocide. Uh, 800,000 people were killed in 100 days of awful killing. Um, the same amount of people die every 100 days through hunger. And they don't die from hunger simply by some kind of accident. They die um, of hunger through structurally violent policies, through policies that shape agricultural trade relations, shape who has access to and ownership of land, and so on. So I think when we think about peace, we can't only think about that absence of war we have to think about those wider issues of justice that make sure that we're actually addressing structural violence and not just direct physical violence. Could you say a bit more about what you mean by structural violence? Uh, structural violence is violence that's written into the everyday operating of things that go on in the world. So um, one example of this might be uh, the everyday operating of um, what we do to the environment. So there are lots of people around the world who are effectively killed by bad weather events or by uh, hunger that arises after they have drought in so areas where they're we, depending on food. we literally at war with the environment? It's not... Well, in a sense, we might be, perhaps metaphorically, metaphorically rather than literally. But not literally. Um, but, but the issue is that there's a violence in everyday practices that lead to this environmental change that is leading to people... Uh, suffering in much the same way that they might suffer in war. Um, and I'm not sure... I, I don't think that kind of killing and suffering is any less significant than the kind of suffering and killing that we get in direct physical conflict mm. and war. And I think any conception of peace has to be able to take into account redress of those more structural, insidious, everyday violences and not only think about the absence of people with guns. So if, if I can come in, because um, one of the things that I have been thinking about is um, that the, the dichotomy, that the, the we keep on talking about war versus peace, mm. yeah. this sets us up to see certain types of violence and only those types of violence, and it is the killing in warfare. Um, and and it is to pick up on your point that we become blind to the other type of suffering, the non-peace, the violence that goes on. Okay, and when we stop seeing that, when we use that dichotomy as though we can always distinguish between what is war and what is peace, because this always breaks down constantly. Um, that that when we kind of we, we pretend as though we can distinguish between 
war and peace in a clear manner, then it blinds us to other violence. And one notable violence that, that clearly I, I mean, you were talking about structural violence in respect of you know, food security, etc., but it's violence against women that we miss. And we, you know, and we know that in conflict situations, of course, that type of violence is exacerbated. It is, it is increased. It, that violence takes different forms. But violence against women happens across peace and wartime. And we don't see that violence. We treat it as normal. And when we begin to look at some of the numbers, then it begins to, well, it certainly raises the question as to whether or not we should redefine war as simply violence against women. And I think these are really, really important questions that we need as scholars to keep on asking ourselves. Mm. Questions that the Centre for Women, Peace and Security is... I mean, that's why it exists. Yes, yeah. Yeah. So you're pushing towards a, a way of thinking about peace on which peace is, is not just the absence of war, but the absence of violence more generally, where, where violence is, is defined quite broadly to include structural violence, even suggested that uh, you might define war as, as, as violence against women. Doesn't this raise the prospect, if we think about the terms in that way, that there has actually never been any peace achieved in the whole of human history, and that human history is continuous war? For some, yeah, perhaps. Perhaps it is our biased perspective of what constitutes war and peace that we need to reflect on before, you know, and I, I think this was, this was called to the second question that you raised um, you know, right at the very beginning, why some periods in world history relatively peaceful yeah. compared to others? Mm. And it's the, the question then has to be asked, for who? Mm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> you know, what is the violence that we're talking about? Mm. So you don't and, think it's mm. true that some, some periods in history have been more peaceful for everyone? I'd say it's very unlikely, um, <laughs> because it's like because the if you if you so peace and war, but peace mm. is political. It's it's not yeah. absent from the the structures that we've created these things, and politics is is not always the same as justice and equality and things like that. So so there's always going to be that imbalance, and I don't think it's maybe a time, but maybe could we look at a place. So we could, like, reorient. Yeah. There are places where people have been mm. safer and more peaceful at yeah. times, but maybe not the whole world. And what is it about those places that has allowed peace to exist there? Well, sometimes it's luck that you actually are in a place where there's no huge uprising, that there's no invading army or, or such like. Um, but there is maybe also the agency of the people involved. They have created peace. They've used nonviolent, peaceful methods of conflict resolution. They've created trusting relationships. They have uh, in encountered, they've used nonviolence to mm. uh, encounter their enemies. So there's, a, there's different ways of thinking, but maybe not the whole world at a time. I'm interested in this question of, is peace the product of high-level stuff, like institutions mm. like the United Nations? Sounded, Rachel, there as though you're quite sceptical of that. It sounds like you're thinking of peace as something that, that individual people achieve, not institutions. I think that is partly true. I think that it's very difficult for uh, anybody to go in and make somebody else's peace. 
actually peace is something that we create in the communities and the, the systems mm. in which we live. Um, and the idea that you could make somebody else be peaceful is a bit of an odd conception. I know we, we do do that sort of thing, um, but it's just sort of like, actually, is it, is it the people involved who mm. create, create the peace? So do you think things like uh, international law, are they just a kind of sideshow? They do nothing? No. I think there's a... I, don't, you, well, I, I was yeah. just going to intervene here yeah. because, you know, when you talk about um, sort of politics at that level, then, then we, we immediately take a state-centric um, perspective um, and at that state level... Um, we might look at and consider the, the, the two grand peace projects of the 20th and 21st century. And ironically, one is, of course, the European Union, and the second one being the United Nations. Mm. And common to both these peace projects at that interstate mm. level are certain commitments, commitments made by states or belief in Institutions, the creation of institutions. And so, and institutions basically become um, a mechanism that enables dialogue, bonding between states to make, to, 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 to create interdependence, whether it be economic or political, on such a level to make war um, almost unthinkable. That is the rationale for institutions to create. Um, institutions like, for example, courts at that level to resolve um, international mm. disputes between states without having to resort to armed violence. And, of course, it is a commitment to certain norms. And norms can be constructed, most of the time they're constructed in a way to minimize or to eliminate actual use of force. And there we, we have you know, the UN Charter about the prohibition on the use or threat or force um, against another state or the principle of non-intervention. Yeah. But, okay, but let me say that for both institutions like the peace projects of the EU and also the UN Charter, what we're also talking about is this, this commitment not only to this narrow conception of peace as non-armed conflict, the, 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 the non-use of force, but more recently and over the years it's certainly grown to, for example, development, mm -hmm. sustainable development. We see this with sustainable development goals, but we also see it in the project around human rights. We can also add into that mix things like, for example, commitment to democracy, commitment to disarmament. We've not been very good at it, but these are all, you know, sort of various aspects of these peace projects. So one question here is, has, mm -hmm. the, has the project worked? So focusing on the EU, for example... It, well, it you know, 2012, the EU was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. You know, I mean, like, you, you know, we may... We scored on the idea uh, earlier that uh, we've yes seen and, an Yes and no. Peace. Yes and no, because, okay, what it has done is perhaps at the interstate mm. level, there has been, you know, through these institutions... Um, Greater dialogue, mm -hmm. perhaps, between states. But between what states in Europe has become a lot less. What we've been decidedly bad at is addressing interstate conflict. Mm 
And that is the nature of the international system that is committed, where states are committed to non-intervention. Because after all, the UN Charter was all about, you know, sort of sovereign equality of states and the principle of non-intervention. Uh, mind you, at the same time, there is the inclusion, the recognition that there is a line that is drawn there because there is also the commitment to human rights. And so, you know, out of that legacy, we have the emergence of, for example, the principle mm. or, or, you know, mm. um, responsibility to protect. Um, and that entire development, but, okay, in terms of has have these projects worked, perhaps at the interstate armed conflict level, but not yeah. internally. And this is Another what's level. hugely mm. problematic. Can I pick up on that uh, claim you made about the link between peace and disarmament? Because mm. that was my other provocation at the, at the beginning, <laughs> right? That uh, arguably there's two sides to peace in Europe. There's the ec economic inter interdependence created by the EU in the second half of the 20th century, and then there's also the immense military power of NATO. And a critic might argue that the immense military power of NATO has been just as important to maintaining peace in, in Europe as that economic integration. <laughs> I'm guessing <laughs> at least one of you will disagree with that statement. <laughs> I can speak to that woman. Well, I, I could start by saying that I'm not sure that there was anything particularly peaceful about a high-altitude aerial bombing campaign launched by NATO in Kosovo, which had massive, massive civilian casualties. Um, I also worry that when we start to invest a lot of hopes in the fact that building... Uh, I mean, one thing, there's a continuum between the kinds of militarization that we see that involve massive investments in weapons, massive investment in bases, and the everyday violences that Louise talked about earlier. Um, when you get a military base, you tend to get all sorts of forms of gender-based violences that emerge around that setting. And I think it would be a mistake to only look at that big level of interstate peace and to forget about the massive violence that is done by everyday militarization, everyday uh, training people in using violent means and the way that that spills over to nearby communities. Um, and, I mean, other simple observations would be how much do they invest in those military budgets and how far could that money go to eliminating structural forms of violence that we talked about earlier? Those issues of hunger, poverty that are the biggest security threats, it's threats to the personal security of individuals, could be massively addressed. I think... I don't have the number to hand, but it's a matter of a number of dollars a day for each individual around the world. Um, if, if you took all of global military spending and gave it to individuals, they'd have a number of dollars a day. So poverty is eliminated in one go. So I think investing hopes in that massive build-up of armaments is certainly not a way to address wider structural forms of violence that we've been mm. talking of, and is actually an obstacle. So you see these military alliances mm. like NATO as perhaps potentially a good thing for the interstate violence and then bad for, for within state. I also worry about NATO in relation to interstate violence. If you think about large military build-ups um, of NATO forces around uh, Ukraine, looking around the Russian say, border. Yeah. It's blocks that you then mm. you know, encounter. So. And a, a war between blocks mm. is... We're back at the Second mm. World War. Um, I, I would go one step further than that and actually talk about the sort of like the whole idea of uh, militarism 
So this idea that a military bloc yep. is going to try and create peace is actually one of the biggest barriers to creating peace. So not only does it the military spending, I think it's like 3.2 trillion a year on military spending, but actually it stops us thinking of all of the ways to create a more peaceful future. If we straight away go to the military and the weapons and the guns and the arms manufacturers and don't first look for the peaceful, which includes human rights, international criminal court, all the, the peaceful mechanisms... The, the peace education, I mean, sort of like they talk about sustainable development goals, education being the number one thing which can change and lead us to a It's exactly mm. the same for peace education. Yeah, so we'll, we'll move on shortly to the, mm. the next topic of pacifism, but I'd love to take a few questions from the audience, uh, first of all. On these issues we've been discussing up to now, what peace actually is, whether peace is just the absence of war or whether it's absence of violence more generally and also what the causes of peace actually are. Let's have a question from uh, five rows back, and then we'll move forwards. Please wait for the microphone to come to you so that we can capture your question for the recording. Thanks. Thank you, Thank you all for your questions. Um, it seems that one prerequisite to peace is some kind of definition, and that's where we'll, we're falling short on a global scale. We have definitions like genocide from the United Nations, but refuse to recognize the Yazidi people genocide, the Uyghur Muslims in China, the Rohingya. Right? We have all these pocket, pockets where there's clearly genocide happening. And in terms of your definition of lack of war, the only reason there's a lack of war is because we refuse to acknowledge that it's happening. So can you speak to that and what we can do as ordinary citizens to draw attention to these pockets where there's clearly war happening? but we, we maybe don't have the en enough strength um, unilaterally to, to say it's a genocide or a massacre. Mm, yeah, good question about cases where there, there really is war or there really is genocide and we deny it, we don't want to call it that. Well, I don't think it's so much about the sort of like that we don't want to call it that because I think part of it is that in in every one of those situations. So I mean, if you even think about sort of Syria um, over the past years <laughs> uh, and the, the level of violence within that, there were hundreds of people, nonviolent activists, peace activists, human rights activists all calling out and saying what was going on and talking about it. They might not have been able to be heard very well, but they were there. So I think part of it is our responsibility to actually go and look for either the peace or the, the insights. If it feels like there's, there's something we're not hearing about, whether it's level of casualties or displacement or the way in which uh, human rights are being abused. Um, it's almost like trust here. And so one of the things I always say is like in every single place where there is violent conflict, there are people working for peace and nonviolence. Whether or not they do it, they're setting up with their neighbours or they're in creating new communication mechanisms or, or whatever it is they're doing. Nowadays, there are a lot on social media and they've got websites, but it, in all of those places, even if they're quite hidden. So in Syria, there's amazing projects where people are documenting all of the abuses. They are, uh, it's all online. You can find all of this, but it's very hidden. And so there's sort of part of a responsibility to, to search and to find so that we can... Uh, well, we can know, we can act. Part of what we can do is make sure that those stories and those examples are heard because you, you're right, that, that ongoing war is, is, is one of the huge tragedies. Mm. There was a question from the uh, second row. Let's go down to the second row. 
Yeah, thank you for a very thought-provoking uh, 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 points of view. Uh, when we talk about peace, uh, those peoples uh, not enjoying peace often refer to they are, they are seeking peace and justice. Is it not the case that quite frequently peace and justice are incompatible? And I could quote many cases, but I'll refer to the Palestinian situation. Justice for the Palestinian people would be their homelands completely restored to them. That would consequently not be, be justice for the Israelis. So should we not think in terms um, of peace and the best balance of justice we can get? Interesting thought about whether peace and justice can actually come into conflict with each other. I'd mm. like to come in on I, this. I was going to say, can I... Can I? come back to the original. I'm so sorry because I do I would like to address the Palestinian issue as well but I, I think you raise a really important question that I, I do want to explore a little bit more because you started off by saying that we should have a definition of peace and this is something that my colleagues here who have joined me in the audience and, and I, we've been pondering over, thinking over for you know under a research project that we're all engaged in um, what is peace and particularly in the context of international law, because international law does not define peace. Um, and we were at a recent workshop, you know, full of, sort of leading scholars, and this same question, issue of the definition of peace came up. And one of the dangers, okay, um, although the, the, it might offer some form of clarity, one of the dangers when we think about defining peace is that you know, the more people we talk to, the more we realize that there are multiple conceptions of peace. In other words, peace, you know, is always context dependent, always is particular, always is individual, always is time, um, you know, framed by time and space. Okay? And by not having a definition as such, it allows for that space to have a far more dynamic, richer understanding of peace that maybe with a definition we foreclose. And so we can have that discussion, that contestation around notions of peace and what it means without being locked in. And I think that's really something that we need to bear in mind, to think carefully about before we take that step, you know, sort of towards a far more... Um, sort of generally accepted notion of peace because that is bound to exclude. And exclusion is the one thing that peace, or for those of us that, um, who believe in some kind of substantive notion of peace, exclusion is one thing that we really want to avoid. Okay. Um, on this question, of may, may I, is that okay? Course, I, I feel yeah, like, peace, a, peace sorry, justice. peace and justice. And, uh, all the time, mm -hmm. absolutely all the time. And we see this, you know, I mean, like particularly in the context of um, justice understood from my discipline is international criminal law, individual accountability. And sometimes, not sometimes, very often, we have this sort of trade-off almost um, do we, you know, sort of pursue justice, or is this particular context um, not conducive to justice? Because actually, if 
as the international community, if we intervene and insist on justice and hold individuals accountable for whatever their actions in the context of a conflict, those key individuals, and I say key because they have usually been the weapon bearer in conflict, are okay, critical often to that peace process. That said, okay, I, I, I don't think that we should necessarily say that in all circumstances there is this balance to be had. Because sometimes, sometimes indeed, the justice aspect is necessary for peace. That people do need some semblance of justice, some semblance of recognizing that a wrong was done and that someone has to take responsibility for that wrong before you can move on to, to build perhaps a peaceful society, to come to terms with what has happened. So, you know, I mean, like it's, it, it's always context dependent. But the important thing in all those circumstances is that we actually listen to people, to people whose lives matter, whose people, to people who are directly affected by the conflict, by the injustice. Mm. Because often, too often, it's the case with the international community that we come in and we tell people what they need. And this is why the Kakaka courts in Rwanda and the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions are so important, because they're a way of people participating in the justice um, rather than it yeah. being top-down so institutional. there is this trade-off, but then sometimes mm. peace is what makes subsequent justice possible yeah. through these processes. Well, one can see the other way around as well. I mean, um, your question has actually made me reflect on the relationship between peace and justice. Um, and I actually think that justice, which we can understand as the absence of structural violence, which would be a different way of putting it, is actually a necessary precondition of peace. Um, if, we, if, you know, we, we, we were talking uh, about different understandings of peace and different understandings of violence earlier, and we are all kind of calling for a paradigm shift according to which we adopt a broader conception, a broader understanding of peace and also broader understanding of violence. Um, now, part of the discussion, which was quite a, sort of implicit, mm. was that structural violence and direct violence are often interrelated. Mm. Direct violence often stems from forms of structural violence, such as, such as vast inequality, exploitation, forms of discrimination. So in order to be able to address direct forms, physical forms of violence, we actually have to think very carefully about the structural drivers of this sort of violence. So we have to think about injustice, in other words. Mm -hmm. And only if we create a world which is less unjust, we can also create a world which is more peaceful, both in terms of a broader conception of peace and also a more narrower conception of peace as the absen absence of physical violence. Let's take mm -hmm. one more question. There's uh, quite a few questions, but let's <laughs> go back to the, the fourth row, middle of the fourth row. Please wait for the microphone to come to you. And then we will uh, talk among the panel a bit more, and then there'll be a chance to ask further questions later. Here we go. Here's the microphone. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is going back to Dr. Dunford's point about the danger of a definition. <coughs> Sorry. I'm just wondering, if peace has always 
subjective and contextual, and if we do choose to sort of broaden our understanding of violence and peace, how can we recognize when peace has been attained? And also, is it necessary to understand and recognize when it's been attained? And is it ever attained at all? It depends, again, on your definition of peace, actually. You know, I, mean, like, I just keep on coming back to, you know, how do we define, how do we understand, not definition, no, your understanding of, because I see peace as a process. Peace is something that, you know, you don't one day wake up and go, oh, yeah, we're here. You know, I mean, like, it, it, it's not that. That's not peace. Um, and, you know, the, the, you, you can understand, your, or, you know, sort of understand peace at multiple different levels. And there, there's also this other type of peace that, you know, sort of we, we've actually not even touched on. Um, and it's an inner peace too. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important because an inner peace actually is dependent also on what is happening externally. Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 as I said, I, I really don't think you, we do wake up and say we're there. I think you do a little bit if you're looking at sort of like non-violence. So if you're looking at a way of engaging with the world and you use sort of non-violence, because non-violence has sort of things like being inclusive. So if you are feeling excluded or you exclude people, that is necessarily not a, a part of that. Or if, you're, if you've got really sort of relationships where they're trusting and you could resolve conflicts if they emerge without hitting each other, then that can be sort of like part of it. So I think, I think it is possible to recognise sort of maybe not that you live in a perfect world where there is no violence towards you whatsoever, but that actually pretty much you're, you're safe and you, you walk around, you have trusting relationships with people. Um, and that might well be at a sort of a state level as well. So, I mean, sort of like Costa Rica is the only country that and a military, and it's built up trusting relationships with its neighbours and things like that. So I think it is possible to, to say there are some things which are hmm. peaceful. Okay, well, more, more questions yes. from the audience later. But for now, let's shift a bit from peace to pacifism. Mm-hmm. I mean... Peace turns out not to be a simple thing at all. Uh, The absence of war um, turns out to be something a lot more complicated than that. So, Michael, I mean, what is pacifism then? Well, are you asking for a definition again? (laughs) Well, I'm asking, I mean, would you say that you are a pacifist? That depends on what you mean by it. I mean, um, I can tell you how pacifism is usually um, represented in, in, you know, what, what is sort of the public image of pacifism. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly in this country, in Britain, pacifism doesn't have a particularly good reputation at all. Um, so a pacifist is a coward. A pacifist is an appeaser. Um, a pacifist is someone who wouldn't press the red button under any circumstances. Um, a, pacifism, a pacifist is actually a moral monster, right? Because a pacifist is potentially complicit in evil. A pacifist is someone who would never, ever engage in violence. Not only do they think, the pacifists, that violence is always wrong, that it's never right, never just to resort to violence and war, but they also wouldn't never do it. They have the position, you must never wage violence. So that is, the, in a sense, the, the mainstream characterization um, of pacifism. 
And then lots of examples tend to be invoked. You know, the pacifist wouldn't have gone to war against Hitler, for example. There we go. This is morally monstrous. So pacifism gets sort of discredited and, and ridiculed very easily. Now, there's a different form of pacifism, according to which a pacifist isn't just a passive bystander who lets uh, catastrophes and disasters happen, but who's constantly engaged in their everyday life in the, in the creation of a world um, in which these sorts of conflicts and dilemmas do not arise in the first place, which is a hell of a task, mm. of course. But I, I would reject that um, classification of the pacifist as someone who's just against violence and sort of morally self-righteous about it, and that's it. Not someone who's, who's entirely passive, but someone who is actively engaged in, in promoting peace. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can we go back to that, that hard case then? You said the... the stereotypical images of a pacifist is of someone who wouldn't have gone to war against Hitler. Do you think that you can be a pacifist and say that uh, that, that war was, you know, World War II was justified? You want to, um, well, we can maybe both. I mean, a pacifist would never call a war justified. I mean, the, the Second World War um, was a war that, for instance, included the dropping of two nuclear bombs. It was the war that included the carpet bombing of cities, you know, that included the killing and maiming of lots of innocents as well. So I think to call a war, this war, any war, just is a category mistake. And in that sense, I am a pacifist, in, that, in, in the sense of not believing in the possibility of a just war. Not even, mm. you know, I think it's a mistake even to begin to think about war in that sort of way. So the question is, what should we learn uh, from the Second World War? Most people want to learn the lesson, well, you know, the way the discussion always goes is, okay, once you've admitted that the Second World yeah, War was yeah. just, you've admitted that you're not a pacifist, but you're effectively a just war theorist, right, in disguise. You believe that wars can actually be justified. Ha-ha. So we've got that concession out yeah. of you, yeah. and now we are building something else on that concession because we, we got like some sort of neutral uh, kind of decontextualized concession, and we are transforming that concession into a justification for contemporary militarism and for the upholding and furthering and strengthening of a militaristic moral climate that can then be utilized in order to justify contemporary wars. And that's the danger, which is why I'm kind of slightly always refusing that question about what right. about, I mean, obviously you're not asking that the question with that sort of intention, but that's the intention that the question tends to get asked with. And one needs to be um, really, uh, I think, insistent on pointing out that that question cannot be separated from the structural, the discursive context and the political context in which we find ourselves, which is a highly mor uh, uh, militaristic one and a highly moralistic one as well. Okay. I mean, I'm interested in, in probing this, this question of what your pacifism commits you to mm. and how you differ from that caricature you, you offered at the beginning. I mean... You wouldn't have declared war on Nazi Germany. You wouldn't press the button under any circumstances. I mean, <laughs> so if, your, if I your, can... Your, your attitude is that those are unreasonable questions to ask, not that you disagree with the, the caricatured answers. Is that fair? So if I can spin it to a slightly different example that I'm much more familiar with from my research. Yeah. So we have done a lot of research in relation to... Uh, what is sometimes termed humanitarian military intervention. And the equivalent of the World War II mm -hmm. case there is the case of the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. Uh, a horrendous, very, very rapid genocide which saw 800,000 people killed in 100 days. 
And what tends to happen is the question, if you take an approach that is a broadly pacifist one in that you say, I don't consider military intervention to be justified, you keep getting asked, what about Rwanda? What about Rwanda? Surely that situation was so bad that you would justify military intervention. And I think where we'd want to say that pacifism is very different from other approaches is... Um, is where we look at the lessons to be learned from something like the Rwandan genocide. The lesson that has been learned internationally is we need uh, new norms that allow us to determine when military intervention can happen and we need to have the commitments in place such that the international community will allow other countries to go in and intervene to protect civilians. The pacifist lesson comes from asking a different set of questions. Why has this genocide occurred? What are the deeper underlying back to structural violences, structural violences that lead to this happening. And if you look at that in the context of Rwanda, there's a huge range of them. Shortly before the intervention, Rwanda, the Rwandan government was spending about a, a huge, huge proportion of its budget on arms, uh, many of which it was getting from France, who were also um, supporting military training. Uh, there was a peace agreement sponsored by the international community that was considered to actually not be just, uh, going back to that earlier question, which led to a backlash. There were various economic issues around um, dependence on coffee as a commodity and the dropping in prices there that led to huge social tensions. And there was a long history of colonial rule which had pitched Hutu against Tutsi and taken a distinction that existed and turned it into a division with all this hatred. And I think what the pacifist asks when confronted with these kinds of dilemmas is how do we make sure that this can never happen again? Uh, it's not by having a new principle that says the international community can go and wage war. It's by addressing those underlying injustices and forms yeah. of violence. So I think um, in that sense, pacifists are highly, highly active, but they're not so much focused on that moment that we're in that horrible position. They're thinking about all the things that go on every day to try and construct and yeah. build a positive peace that so will make you, sure that these if you were put in that horrible position, you, you would authorise a military intervention. It's just that you don't think that thought experiment is a, is a very helpful one to think about. Is that a fair uh, description of your view? Or to be honest with you, I don't know what I mm. would do. I don't know if I could bring myself to mm. slaughter lots of innocents in, in order to save some more innocents, for example, if that's mm. the scenario. Yeah. And I would never claim that to be justified. I do recognize that there can be dilemmas or tragedies, if you want, mm. in the world where it's impossible not to do the wrong thing, yeah. not to do something majorly wrong. Mm. So you might be able to cite a historical example or certainly to fabric, fabricate a hypothetical example in your mind mm -hmm. where the situation is such that violence, war, is the only possible means to save innocent lives. Lots of more innocent lives than were the violence not to be engaged yeah. in. Right? Yeah. That's the scenario that you're, you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what... I mean, I'm honest enough to say... Uh, you know, I've never claimed to be that sort of radical pacifist that not just thinks that it would be wrong to engage in violence, which I do think, but that it would always say, I would never under any circumstances do it. If a member of the audience were now to attack you, for example, it might well be the case that I proceed to defending you. Um, but I would never claim to be that's, just that's in that. somewhat reassuring. <laughs> Could have been more reassuring. <laughs> but the question is, I mean, the lesson, the, the, the trouble is that is. Again, as soon as we, as we say, oh, yeah, we would do that, and that would be justified, what happens is that violence gets institutionalized, right? Um, a similar argument re re relates to torture. Some people fabricate the so-called ticking bomb scenario in their minds, where the question is, okay, there is this suspected terrorist, 
um, who's planted a bomb in a metropolis, and then um, you, you can't evacuate the entire metropolis, but you manage to capture the terrorist, and then you can torture them, and uh, that's the only way to get the information in order to then um, defuse the bomb, right? So people use that thought experiment to say, oh, what you have here is the proof, so to speak, the philosophical proof that torture can be justified. Hence, but what they don't think through is that once they've made that argument, they've also made an argument inevitably for the institutionalization of torture. For, and they create a moral climate in which torture becomes acceptable, in which violence is potentially laudable, in which agonized heroes engage in violence, and in which that is, in a sense, a civilized sort of virtuous conduct. And this is the sort of, um, you know, the, the, the trouble is that, that what I've been talking about in relation to torture, and, you know, the same argument could be made in relation to war, all of this get, gets deleted from the picture if we focus on that one moment in time and ask, wouldn't it be right to go to war or to torture someone then? Hmm. Rachel? So, uh, it's very interesting, this would you intervene in a, in a situation of horror. And the, the idea that it's military intervention is based on this assumption, it's very widely held, if there is violence, you need soldiers. And it's only soldiers who can deal with that violence. The work that I would do with, with Nonviolent Peace Force, so Nonviolent Peace Force work on unarmed civilian protection. Mm. So this is civilians who protect other civilians from violence without using weapons. And they have saved lives, they've changed the behaviour of actors, they have gone in and intervened in situations where people were facing direct violence and uh, mm. death, and they have protected those people. So this assumption that where there is violence you need soldiers is not true. Actually, unarmed civilians without weapons can also intervene in that. The fact mm. that it's been... Uh, the whole debate has been completely dominated by that you can only send in soldiers is part of the, the mm. difficult thinking around this because actually there are civilians around the world who are intervening in these sorts of in different scenarios and protecting others. Mm. And can I, so a question for you, Robin, can I, this mm. question of what, a, what should a pacifist do when war is declared? Presumably the pacifist is not someone who rushes off to sign up uh, to the army at the, at the nearest station, but nor, nor, according to Michael, is it someone who, who just hides away and does absolutely nothing. What, what, sh what should a pacifist do? Um, in the context of most wars that are declared, resist, contest, challenge, seek to persuade otherwise, uh, war tends to not work very well to you get... You say most as if to say there are exceptions to that. Um, well... well <laughs> I don't necessarily want to say exceptions, but the, when Michael was talking about Rwanda earlier and that sense that there are situations where, in light of the things a pacifist has always been calling for not happening, you're left in this horrible situation. In those kinds of situations, perhaps the response is precisely the kind of practices that Rachel was talking about. Think about the unarmed forms of protection that can operate there. Uh, but in lots of cases where war is declared, um, I would think the best thing to do is actually to challenge that and to try and persuade and encourage people that war is not going to get the outcomes that are desired. Uh, most wars that take place today don't end in any kind of victory by one side over another. They end up in stalemate in states that can no longer function, and all sides in that war end up worse off than when they started. So I think a pacifist would be looking to get that message across and try and demilitarize the situation, both in terms of 
convincing people that they don't want to go to war and in terms of thinking about those practices that they can engage in non-violently in order to address what's going on on the ground. It's actually quite interesting that uh, many people are completely persuaded that pacifism doesn't work, mm. but the fact that war doesn't work doesn't seem to enjoy quite as widespread uh, support as a position. Yeah, presumably there's a lot of conflation of pacifism with appeasement, as you mentioned, mm. with yeah. the idea that, that government should simply accede to the demands of aggressive states. But for you, pacifism is more about what individual citizens can do to try and produce peace at the level of individuals. Is that fair, do you think? Uh, well, at the level of individuals, but also together in solidarity. I think, you know, you know, if there's lots of disjointed individuals just doing their thing, that might not be particularly effective. I mean, let's take some more questions from the audience then at this point about these issues of pacifism, what pacifism is, what a pacifist should do, and whether it is actually justified or whether there really, really there are exceptions. Um, let's have a question from the fourth row there. Please wait for the microphone to come to you. It's nearly there. Hi. Um, my question is about different states' attempts to try to promote peace in other countries by addressing the structural reasons. And I think we, we, there's definitely an argument made that states shouldn't be doing that, but states are. And so they often try to promote peace by promoting certain principles like liberal principles, democracy, free trade. To what extent do you think these peace projects have been effective? And have you noticed in your research any particular principles that co often correlate with peace? Or is it often a context, case-by-case -case basis? Um, liberalism promotes peace. Democracies yeah. don't go to war with each other. Must have heard that a few yeah, times. Yes, so, well, that, that that was the theory. Yeah. <laughs> it is, you know, I mean, like, we've had, to, you know, sort of one failure after another. Um, what I was going to say is, what we we've tried to, or the international community has sporadically tried to do, but not in a comprehensive manner. That maybe more effort should go into is about involvement of women. Okay, mm. um, we've been really, really bad on that front. We have. You know, token women, etc. But you know, I, I, I talked to, for example, um, women who come from conflict zones, and still, you know, I mean, I, when I talk about the international community, I'm talking UN as well as some leading states. That that in whether it's in peace processes, negotiations, post-conflict nation building, women still get sidelined. They are absolutely excluded from that process of peace building. Um, and, and this is hugely problematic. Um, what tends to happen is that particularly you know, at that stage where there is some sort of steps are being taken to negotiate some kind of ceasefire, then, then international actors tend to only speak to the weapons bearers who are invariably men. And it is, we've seen it in Yemen, we see it in Syria, we see it in, you know, sort of one state, one situation after another. And there comes a point where, you know, if we've tried a formula and it just doesn't work, we need to look further. And perhaps this is the time when the UN actually turns around and says, no, we do need 
to include women from the very beginning, from that you know, sort of negotiating phase for um, a ceasefire. Because unless we hear from different voices, okay, at that stage, whatever we build on subsequently is going to be missing that really important engagement of at least half the population. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, like it's it's you, we keep and and I, I I think the important thing is to keep putting pressure on to keep on reminding whether it's you know sort of as scholars you know, publishing on this area, but also as activists, peace activists, to continue to remind those with power that You're actually... You're <laughs> No, because <laughs> you, it wasn't... It, it was referring to the, the, your earlier here. comment <laughs> about, you know, the, the, is, is, is peace something that is almost mm. only in mm. the hands of mm. yeah. politicians, yeah. and it actually isn't. Mm. So, mm. Are there further questions on this questions. Uh, nature and justification of pacifism? That's a question we'll throw. Um, yes, I suppose a question really about lo to, to locate it here a little bit in London and talking about peace in the city so perhaps a question about serious youth violence and how yeah practical action for boys and men who perhaps would like to be pacifistic mm. in daily life yeah and mm. um, yeah it's, it's also really interesting type of violence so the in uh, Chicago well, there's quite a lot of city violence. Um, they have this amazing project called Cure Violence. And they don't see violence as, uh, like we've been talking about, like a political thing by the state. They see it much more as like a medical model, that violence spreads. And in the same way that medicine has learned to interrupt the spread of a virus, they have learned how to interrupt the spread of violence by people in that community who are known and trusted, maybe who have said, oh, brother's being killed, I don't want this to happen to anybody else, and actually want to turn around and, and stop that spread of violence. So there are actually models, and that's now all over, and it has an enormous success rate in, in dropping violence and engaging people in communities. Uh, Manchester, they've worked on gun violence and all sorts of things. So there are um, ways in which, sort of like, if you don't want to just put more robust, forceful violence to stop people and stuff like that. Actually, there's lots of ways in which people are peacefully and creatively trying to reduce the amount of violence, engage people, and give them alternatives. Alternative ways of having an identity and a role. Um, and of course, it's linked in with sort of unemployment and, and things like that. So that's mm. one of the most exciting ways of looking at it that I, I use. Mm. Thank you all for the very interesting talk um, panel. Um, continuing on this in this um, thought of local initiatives and involving communities, um, do you think that um, how governments and uh, international initiatives neglect this dimension almost entirely, does this have to do with a very um, maybe Western notion of what peace is and how it can be achieved, um, and also um, 
do you think do you see do you think it's viable in a not so distant future that maybe the international community and other peacekeeping peace building initiatives might um, have more dialogue in, with these different spheres and maybe funding mm -hmm. and other kinds of initiatives as sort of has been happening in the reconciliation field that a lot of programs are being funded mm. do you see that happening yeah thank you um, yeah, so there is, the, whether or not it's all because of the Western definition of peace, I'm not sure, because that in itself is a little bit contested. Um, but in terms of sort of how, uh, how you bring people in, I think they're starting to do it better than sex. So reconciliation is one area, and I think peace building is another area where there's more roots for people to be heard. Um, and more recognition. So like a peace process is a really great one to think about. So a peace process is generally agreed at the highest, highest uh, government level. Um, but on the whole, a peace process, even if they have a ceasefire agreement and the, everybody signs it, is not going to work unless the people involved actually support it. So if they just sort of like refuse to cooperate, carry on sort of sorting out checkpoints and, and uh, not participating, it doesn't work. So there has to be, so this recognition, there has to be some co-option or something like that by which the government level understand they can't get any kind of sort of like peace and stop destroying everything without the people. But also, and I think it does talk to you after about like, can you just have peace at the community level? Well, no, because we're in a world where money decisions, borders, identity and everything is all created through international law, states and stuff like that. So there has to be some recognition by communities that they also have to engage with. In the same way in the City of London, you don't only work with people in that, you have to work with um, like the authorities in order to get things to, to work. I mean, obviously Northern Ireland is the example that comes to mind when mm. you talk about peace process mm. really still going on. Yeah. Um, far from complete, increasingly seems like a process about the integration of different communities mm. rather than being about high-level political agreements, although perhaps that's uh, ignoring that the high-level political side is still important. Mm. Well, that is both. And I think mm. partly what we saw in Northern Ireland, um, one of the turning points towards the like, Good Friday Agreement working was the massive participation of people. So like with uh, Betty and Migrade, engaging with lots of women leading, um, sort of like lots of conversations about it. Um, Do you think that can be a model for other peace processes or is it not successful enough to really be a model? I think it is a model which is used in peace processes. And I think we're still learning a lot. So uh, like the Philippines peace process has been all about civilians engaged in doing the ceasefire monitoring. So they actually go and see what those who signed the peace agreement, if they're, they're upholding it. So I think the peace process is a really interesting one to watch. It's, it's a small part of peace, mm. but it's a really interesting one to watch because civilians are more and more seeing a route to, to engage. I think that mm. the, it, it's quite funny because this mm. um, conversation came up in this workshop I mentioned earlier. Um, and it, there's always the risk that um, well, we want to build peace from, call it the bottom yeah. up. Yeah. That that then um, the risk is mm. that it then enables the elite yeah. to 
avoid the responsibility. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't work at that yeah, bottom absolutely. level, then fingers get pointed in that direction. Mm. And so we need to be, while, exactly. while I think it's really mm. important mm. to, to yeah, yeah. have that kind of initiative, it, it's, you know, it, it has to be at yeah. the different levels. Not and everyone to has to take level. responsibility. Yeah. Mm. So, questions now. There's a question there. <laughs> you <laughs> sudden. Back, and then we'll go back to the row behind. Hello. Thank you. That's been very interesting. Um, so I think I have two questions based on one is well, the, with the pacifist thing that we're talking about and the other one is for the bottom-up approach. Um, so most of the peace processes that are being led around the world are being led by formerly aggressive states or imperialist states. Um, and um, some would call military intervention um, um, selective in the sense that whether action is to be taken or not is um, the state actors decide based on um, benefits or um, threats to their own domestic security. Um, if you could throw some light on that, whether I'm right about that or not. Um, and second would be you know, the bottom-up approach that you're talking about is extremely important. Uh, but a lot of the disturbed areas, conflict areas in the world today, the violence um, may seem like people are involved and hence there is, has to be this other side that needs to um, work for peace. But a lot of it is state-incited and it's very organized by the state itself. Um, so um, how, how do we address that, that problem? Thank you. Uh, shall I take the, uh, I, I'm happy to answer the uh, is intervention for purportedly humanitarian reason selective? Yes, without doubt. <laughs> it's very selective. And I think some, sometimes you get... Um, so one thing you sometimes get amongst lots of people who write about humanitarian military intervention is they say, oh, yes, it's selective, but even so, it's kind of better that it happens sometimes than when it's not. So um, it might be the case that uh, given intervention happens only because there are a set of interests at play in that area. Um, but you know, it might be that you want in a way a bad example, but military intervention in Libya, interests around stemming the flow of migrants and so on and so forth. Turns out the intervention has massively increased the flow of migrants, but anyway. Um, sometimes people say, well, fine, there might be interests at play, but it's better that it happens than not. Um, I think one thing that Michael and I have argued in the book we wrote on military intervention is that actually the interests at play often have a major impact on the way in which the intervention takes place and mean that the intervention often ends up making the situation actually a lot worse. Uh, Some of the interests at at stake are being able to have channels for arms sales and these obviously are going to create more weapons in the area and in the region. Um, So I think yes they are selective um, and the selectivity is not a problem because it means sometimes you get interventions and sometimes you don't when it would be better to have a more consistent approach. Uh, the issue is that there are interests at play that mean that those agents aren't really fit for the purpose of protecting civilians. They're going to be going there and doing all sorts of other things that are going to only re-entrench the conflict dynamics and end up in protracted situations. And that's one of the reasons why, humani- one of many reasons why humanitarian intervention, humanitarian military intervention, I should say, has such a poor track record with cases like Libya where NATO go in and the result is massive destruction that just keeps going on. So, 
yes, they are selective. Um, yes, there are various agendas that go on within them. And those agendas make it very difficult for there to be a good humanitarian outcome from military action. Um, and on the case of, yeah, people in communities facing violence from the state, and that's one of the most difficult because the state is what normally we give the, the, the role of protection to its uh, citizens. Um, and some of the cases that we've looked at are where people are um, creating some protection and some networks. So a lot of people who face uh, state violence have been facing it for a long time. They live in regimes where that's uh, sort of become very common. And they will have a lot of strategies of hiding people, of people going to exile for various amounts of time, um, uh, of having early warning of, of what's going on. So one of the things that sort of like non-white peace force and unarmed civilian protection does is actually make that a bit safer. So you can actually employ a set of strategies by which um, not just with internationals, but sometimes with internationals, but also local people who um, work at all levels, who engage with those commanders, who talk about it. And what you're doing is creating a safe space. So you don't do that, you don't create peace for people. You, you enable those people who are working for peace, who are often the ones who are targeted, peace and human rights, to actually do their work. So this works with human rights defenders, it works with peace activists, it's worked with those who's sort of like, they grew up with having to hide in, the, in a hole in the ground for their childhood, and they don't want that to happen to their family now, so they are normal citizens, and they are going to do everything they can to protect them, and what we can do is actually use presence and monitoring and other visible things um, to do that, because it's outside a state mechanism. So you can actually uh, enhance the capacity of local people to do that. So that, that and going along with sort of non-violent resistance and actually changing the whole thing. But that's maybe a longer project than staying alive for another week. So let's talk a bit about this, this kind of key mm. issue of what we can actually do as mm. individual civilians to promote peace. Because on the face of it, particularly if you're thinking about peace in terms of armed conflict, you can often be a bit... Disillusioned, You can often think that as an individual, I can do absolutely nothing because these decisions are made by politicians, whether they're good or bad. They don't really listen to me about these things. So what, what can we really do? I mean, let's start with you, Rachel. I mean, you, you work mm. for this organization, Nonviolent Peace Force. Mm. Sounds very impressive. <laughs> it sounds like it is going to be bringing peace to the world. Can you give sort of concrete mm. examples of what yeah. what the organisation does? Yeah, so Nonviolent Peace Force, it, uh, it's about training uh, and, and working people who are unarmed civilians, trained in non-violence and doing that. And they're effectively doing peacekeeping. So they're protecting mm. other civilians. And so... How do you train someone in non-violence? Train somebody in non-violence. So this has a long history. So you I can look back through. I think I'm already very good through. at non-violence because I'm just. So partly I don't know how it's about. Violence. So partly it's the language you use. So do you use an inclusive language? Do you listen to those? So if you go into a conflict community, instead of coming in with your idea of peace, are you happy to accept that actually there are many different forms of peace and that you can listen to people and respond to their needs? That actually part of non-violence is in. It's a, it's a great idea. There's a thing where if you put your hand up as if you're stopping something, so I am stopping, I do not agree with, and will stop your behavior, 
of violence. But actually, with the other hand, you reach forward and you reach out and say, but I still accept you have worth as a human being. So it's about going in. It's not about sort of say, oh, you're the baddies and you're the goodies. We understand that actually cycles of violence mean that perpetrators are often victims and victims are sometimes perpetrators. There's not a clear line. And so a nonviolent approach actually goes in and say, actually, it's in all of our interests to understand we're all human, we have an interconnectedness between us, and actually to build relationships. So that is not easy. I am in no way suggesting this is easy. This is a very, very difficult thing to do. But that's how you sort of like you train. So it's an attitude that you go in with. So if you go in and you go to... Go go into where? So go into a war zone. Let's take South Sudan for the moment. There's a huge project in South Sudan Mm. of unarmed civilian peacekeeping. So these are people, sometimes they have to walk for a whole day to get Mm. to a community who's very isolated. And one of the things they've done is they've trained 2,000 local women in these techniques. So these are who live in their villages and they work in their area to do that. Mm. So things like uh, a set of checkpoints down a road, all manned by different different armed actors. Mm. And as a woman from one armed from one rebel group group goes through, she gets raped, and she goes to her own checkpoint, gets raped at the other one. Same happens to the other women. Those women work together in the spirit of well, we might be seen to be on different sides, but we're all getting raped. Work together, and they managed to negotiate with all of those people on the checkpoints to make it safer. So even though the checkpoints are still there and they still might detain people, the women are not getting raped. The women are safer. They also have work in the, uh, some of the camps there where actually sort of like, can you set up monitoring regimes? Do we know who all these people are? Has someone checked that actually children are safe? and are not being tibbed up. There's, there's ways in which if you put all the children together and actually watch what they're doing, you can keep them safe from being um, abducted or, uh, or taken into... It's just dangerous yeah. work, basically. Volunteers going into, into war zones, potentially well, risking their own lives. But this is also people who live there. And actually, let's not forget, there are people who live mm. daily in these war zones and they survive. And they survive because they know people, they've built relationships, all of those strategies. And so we're not saying about people get off the plane, get a rucksack and hike off and go to protect people. Mm. These are people who are well-trained, set in a very clear organisational structure. And that structure, just like we've been talking about the different levels, has to join to every level. You can't protect people on the ground if nobody knows you're there. And this is, is it fair to say that this is mostly aimed at, at kind of reducing the suffering caused by war, particularly for women and children? It works on the basis that if people have the space, the protection and the agency, Mm. they can affect the situation that they're in. If we're we're not talking about sort of like a war that was declared by people in remote places, we're talking about people where they, they know the commanders, they probably went to school with some of these people. And actually, if we can create the space for those Mm. people to... Take, give them mobile phones to each side so actually people who can't meet can still communicate. Um, if you can sort of like divert your young people into other activities, you can change conflict dynamics. Hmm. I mean, let's bring Louise in because presumably this idea of trying to reduce the suffering particularly experienced by women in, in war is a key aim of what the, the LSE Centre 
for women, peace and security is, is aimed at achieving? It's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, <laughs> I'm fascinated by this new development because it is, it's really exciting, this idea of unarmed civilian protectors, mm. you know, peacekeepers, because we are so accustomed to thinking about peacekeepers being weaponized, I mean, they, mm. they're carrying weapons. And that's what protection is all about. Like, so this is. All, do you think all peacekeepers can be unarmed? The the work that is being done with all peacekeepers, armed, unarmed, and unarmed mm. military missions, they all say that the, what they actually works is the relationships yeah. and the presence. So I'm not saying they can't all they can all be anything, but I'm saying it's mm. not the guns that are that are mm. working. So it is quite a transformative way to do peacekeeping, which mm, certainly yeah. the international community is not used to this kind mm. of peacekeeping. Um, but, but it's really exciting mm. work mm. that's being done. Um, you know, you, you asked about what can we as ordinary citizens do, and it seems to me that what you're, the kind mm. of training that you're involved in is to reach out to ordinary citizens Absolutely. who are very much part of that mm. community who are directly affected by, you know, sort of heightened mm. violence. But what can we do here mm. sitting in yeah. the LSE? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, the, 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 the sort of the founding principles upon which mm. your project rely also apply to all of us. Absolutely. And it's about engaging in conversations. What's really important about, for example, even tonight's event mm -hmm. is that we're having this conversation. You go back and you have multiple conversations with your friends, with your neighbors, with your family members. Um, and I always subscribe to the position that actually conflict okay, is, is a good thing. Mm. What I um, uh, 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 resist is violent conflict mm. because there is we need to make mm. that distinction because conflict can be healthy mm. but as long as any conflict can be resolved or mediated through through verbal interaction without having to resort to violence so what can we do we can reject all forms of violence interpersonal mm -hmm. violence we can you know, do our little bit about thinking critically about what we see on the news every day and how we might engage. You ask different questions. You, you know, one of the things that, that um, gives rise to conflict is how we engage with the stranger. We can change our attitudes. This is all about changing mm. attitudes. You notice the stranger. You welcome the stranger in. Um, you learn and listen to colleagues. You know, you see, you try to see the world through their eyes. And that's really difficult. And forever you're trying to, you remind yourself that you need to be self-critical too. You're self-critical mm. about what you consume, not literally, but also what you consume in terms of information and what you repeat. You, you have, you change your attitude about your, your relationships of care within those in your community. Really importantly, and this is where, where many of us are not very good at, is when you see racism, when you see sexism, when you see hate, 
you actually do need to speak out. And this is hugely difficult. But you know what? If each mm. one of us cannot speak out when we see that kind of behavior, then that perpetuates a culture in which that kind of behavior becomes normalized, and that's ripe for conflict. So there are very, very many things that we can do as individuals. A long list of, of often quite sort of um, small-scale things. Yeah. The small is where we begin. Yeah. It all adds up small. to something. Yeah. yeah. Mm. You know? I mean, there's just time for a couple more questions, and it would be great to get some questions on this issue of uh, what we can do as individual citizens to promote peace. Um, thanks very much. I really enjoyed the discussion. I feel the need to just clarify a few things whenever the north of Ireland is used as the leading light in uh, peacekeeping. I'm a community youth worker from Belfast and I work on peace and reconciliation work with young people and I was really delighted to hear the input of how it has to come from many different layers. I've um, grown up most of my life in, in the peace process but I can definitely confirm that it is perpetuated by the tribal politics and that govern our state and regardless of the amount of work that I do as a practitioner and that many peacekeeper activists do on the ground and no matter how much the communities are, uh, are wanting to live in peace and wanting to um, cross divided lines. The fact is that we have 96% of our schooling is still segregated. 93% of our social housing is still segregated. We still don't have the national self-determination of our people because of the, the occupier of Britain is still, still very much present. So I do feel a responsibility to just clarify that it's definitely not all rosy, and um, it, is a, it, it is a process that has been um, mentioned a few times, a piece is a, pro a process, but it definitely has to come from a, a multitude of, of layers, and I think that um, we need to, the, the higher up the scale that we look as to what, how do we get in the state that we're in in the first place, and the responsibility of those who um, are, are perpetuating that is very much needed. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things which is uh, where there's a danger of only looking at the community level is you miss out on that huge power block. And actually, sort of like whether the power block is sort of politics or weapons manufacturers or whatever, actually, unless we start tackling some of that and understanding it as part of the, the, the reason, we can't create peace. And I think it's really important. Thank you. Thanks. There's also a question from the, the second row here. If we go down to the front. Uh, yes, I, it seems to me that it's very easy. Thank you. It seems to me that it's very easy to keep peace in a subsistence agricultural economy. But what happens when you're dealing with an industrial economy? I was in Syria a few weeks before the civil war broke out, and the impression I had was that the economy was on the verge of complete collapse. The cities were too big, the industries were too obsolete, they were propped up with government subsidies, and the whole thing was going to fall apart at any minute. Now, as it happened, the civil war occurred instead. But people have been talking about Syria for a long time, but nobody, as I've heard, has ever talked about bringing about a second industrial revolution there. 
and a second industrial revolution is the only thing that will save Syria. How do you get people to bring this about? I'm happy to respond. In the case of Syria, it's obviously an extremely difficult case that we haven't touched on a great deal. I mean, it's not always easy to keep peace in the context of subsistence economies. There are often battles that take place over water resources, land, and so on and so forth within within that context. Um, It is the case that, I mean, I I think the Syria case, there's a sense in which a number of economic issues would have played some role. There's also lots of links in terms of issues with drought. But I I worry that it can become a bit overreductive to think that immediately when you get those kinds of situations, people are going to resort to violence and it's just going to break out. Um, I think there also have to be lots of ways in which there are differences amongst identity and various other factors. And I think that there's, feeding into Syria, there's long histories through colonial rule and its legacies of uh, divisions that have been maintained, that have sometimes been stoked by other actors. There's lots of regional powers that have gone into that to create a very volatile dynamic um, and I think it becomes overreductive to just think that it's because of industrial decline that you end up with this kind of conflict. I think that in a sense risks losing some of the things that you can do to address that. Um, I'm always wary of talk of bringing about further industrial revolutions because they, in the context of a climate emergency, there's always the worry that that's going to involve more of the forms of resource extraction that are fueling conflicts in other places as there are battles over those resources. Um, But I also do recognise that you need some kind of sense of addressing various economic problems that have their role, but a partial one in bringing about wars. Thanks. I'm afraid that's just about all we have time for. And we've heard that peace should be defined much more broadly than just the absence of war, that it should be more generally the absence of violence, and that can be a bleak thought because it leads to the idea that peace is incredibly difficult to achieve and may virtually never be achieved. On the other hand, it does at least lead to a more optimistic thought, which is that it's then much easier for us to see as individuals what we can do to try to promote peace because there's, there's so many myriad ways in which we can try to reduce the amount of violence in the world through everyday actions like from organizations like Nonviolent Peace Force. Uh, So all that remains is to thank the panel for a fascinating discussion and thank all of you for your questions. Thanks very much.